I am back. Um, I know that was a little longer, but I needed a few minutes to compose myself because it's definitely one of those mornings. Um, so welcome to the second part of this episode, which I am personally very excited about. If you don't know anything about me, um, I am trying to one day hopefully maybe become a journalist or have something to do with political commentary. So when I was trying to figure out the second part of this segment, I was, because, you know, I like to have some sort of thematic elements between the two, I was thinking about, oh, well, Michael Cohen, you know, he could be a liar. I mean, he definitely is a liar, but he definitely could be, I don't know if what he just said was a lie. So what do I want to do that corresponds with that? And I thought, well, you know, people who do tell the truth are journalists and, you know, I love a good spotlight on women in an underrepresented field, and that's journalism. So this is going to be a little different from the previous times that I've covered women and minorities because I don't have like a specific issue or a specific topic. I'm just going to be talking about three women who were either journalists or like writers um, who did a great job of capturing the time and were really brave and really courageous and very truthful which is something I think we lack a lot of in our society. So as always, here are my sources. Like last week when I was trying to do research on Asian Americans and African Americans working together, I couldn't find any. Um, This was kind of similar where a lot of my sources were a little, they definitely were not the New York Times, let's say that much, because it seems like, surprisingly, people don't like talking about women and their accomplishments. Who would have thunk it? Um, so the sources that I used were, this one's really funny, it's biography.yourdictionary, <laughs> and they were a little problematic, and I'm going to engage with them in a bit, um, pulitzer.org, so that's a little reputed, Britannica, PBS, the NB Historical Society, womenshistory.org, and the Washington, oh my god, I meant to write the Washington Post, but I wrote the Washington Pot, um, <laughs> I meant the Washington Post. So the first woman I'm going to be talking about today is Marguerite Higgins. She lived from 1920 to 1966. So she died pretty young. Um, Nothing horrible happened to her. Okay, that's not true. Nothing horrible, like, happened to her as a journalist. She, She got, like, a really weird infectious disease and died super horribly. But on that positive note, she actually did a lot of really cool stuff. So she was a female reporter. And she was a U.S. military correspondent, war correspondent, and um, even the even the U.S. military respected her, and the American public also respected her, even though she was a female journalist in a time where that was not super comfortable for everyone. So she began her career by providing eyewitness accounts of the liberation of German concentration camps at the end of... Oh, my computer just died. Well, it had to happen at some point, folks. Let me just pull it up on my my phone. It's going to take me a couple seconds. I'm sorry. I'm really operating on a... Okay, I'm back. Yes, okay. So she... She started by um, covering the liberation of German concentration camps at the end of World War One. more on, uh, sorry, World War Two. more on that later, and she was most famous for her coverage during the Korean War, and she became the first woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize for international reporting. That's incredible. Like, that's such an honor. So, 
a little background on her. When she graduated with her master's of science degree in journalism, can you believe mass journalism was a master's of science degree in 1942? Mom, Dad, someday I too will be a STEM major when I major in journalism. Um, not anymore, unfortunately. So she actually found that the job market was more receptive than when she had tried to become a journalist after undergraduate because a lot of the men had gone away to war and suddenly there was an opening and because a lot of men were gone so she had a, an opportunity because of war which is something interesting i'm taking a class called gender war and peace building which i would totally recommend if you are interested in that sort of thing and we talk a lot about how sometimes when men leave for war it actually like you know, wartime is a time of a lot of violence and a lot of stress, but it also creates a lot of opportunities for women. Um, let me know if you want me to do like a segment on like women during wartime. I think that could be really interesting, uh, especially because I love talking about women and I think that they're really powerful. So she was able to get a job as a journalist because there was um, a shortage. And then Biography.yourdictionary.com implied that her ambition was aided not only by wartime shortages of reporters, but probably also by her numerous affairs with men on the staff. Which, boy, that is so unfair and so common. Like, a woman accomplishes something great, and somehow that must be, like, it can't be because she was great or because she was powerful or because she had these ideas, but no, it was because she was sleeping with somebody else. And maybe she was, but I don't think that can be the reason that she was so successful and such a good journalist. It's not because of the people she knew. Like, of course, in some ways, yes, it's always about the people you know, but it's not enough to just know people. You have to have your own, your own talents and your own, like, I guess credibility isn't the right word, but I just took objection to that. So biography.yourdictionary.com, you're wrong. And anyone who thinks that women only get other places, get places because of other men, you're also wrong. So she had a lot of success in New York, but she, she, what she really wanted in her heart of hearts was to be a foreign correspondent. And with a lot of persistence, she definitely, she bugged her supervisors. She landed an assignment finally in London, and then eventually she was like, this isn't good enough. I want to be where the action is. And she landed an assignment in Berlin. So she actually did not get to the front lines of World War II until like the end of 1945. So the war was over, but she was one of the people who toured parts of Germany that had, you know, been decimated by bombing raids and she she covered the arrival of allied forces um with some of the really horrible concentration camps. So she she definitely um bore witness to a lot of horrific, horrific things. Um, and her coverage of that, she received a lot of um, different awards, and she got a ribbon, apparently. Oh, sorry, that's not right. Um, she got the New York Newspaper Women's Award um, for Foreign Correspondent of 1945, which, impressive. Um, and then when the Korean War broke out, um, she was a very active participant, and she had... Um, traveled to Seoul the final days before the fall of the city um, to North Korea, and she basically refused to leave. And um, her, another more, um, and she, and she basically escaped 
right before the communists got there. And then um, when her newspaper sent a more experienced, quote unquote, war reporter named Homer Bagard, like, pause for a second. In the 1940s, did everybody have a name that was just like an assembling of consonants? Like Homer Bigart? Like, do you ever look at your little baby and you're like, hmm, yes, he shall be called Homer Bigart. Um, anyway, I- I'm making fun of this guy because I really didn't like him. Um, they sent him because he was a man and he was more experienced. She refused to leave. They-, they were like, go back to Tokyo. And she was like, no, I'm not going. And so the two of them had a rivalry to have the best stories and he he later told an interviewer she was a very brave person and as a result I felt as though I had to go out and get shot at so I resented that my dude nobody asked you to go out there and get shot at because you felt your masculinity was threatened by this female journalist she she was amazing and he felt threatened so that's why I was making fun of um Homer Bigart so she she really was like in the thick of it during the Korean War. And when eventually the American lieutenant general said that all women could not be at the front and they could not be accommodated by facilities at the battlefield, um, Marguerite Higgins was suddenly like, oh, guess what? I suddenly can't hear. So she wore combat fatigues and joined in with all the soldiers and basically did some really great frontline reporting and was eventually awarded the Pulitzer Prize. So she had a lot of, she encountered a lot of resistance when she was trying to be a journalist. But what was remarkable, remarkable about her was that she was persistent and she just didn't care. She was going to cover it and she was going to be a foreign correspondent and she did. And she was very successful. And unfortunately, um, she died very young because of uh, the aforementioned disease. So I also wanted to give, so that's, that's Marguerite Higgins. That's a short, short little sampler. If um, I recommend reading about her, she was fascinating. Um, I also wanted to shine a light on Harriet Jacobs. I think a lot of times when we talk about reporting during um, hardship or during war, it often, like even the journalists that we talk about are um, usually white women like we don't we don't put a lot of information a lot of attention on women of color Harriet Jacobs was not a quote-unquote journalist but she was an incredibly important writer um her name she lived from so she she died 1897 and was born 1813 and she was actually a slave and became a prominent abolitionist and autobiographer and she crafted her own experience into an uncompromising slave narrative um, which was really one of the first of its kind by um, a woman Um, so she her story is somewhat tragic so I won't get too much into it but um, her she was eventually sold to this man named uh, Dr. James Norcom, and he he really was scum. Like, he was one of those, I mean, anyone who owned slave, slaves was truly terrible, but he, he um, harassed her and constantly was after her for, um, oh, I should have provided a trigger warning for this. Um, don't listen if you, um, if your triggers are up sexual assault and, um, slavery and torture so she um he was really after her and wouldn't let her marry anyone and 
was very controlling of her. And so her only path to freedom was to start an affair with a white man and become pregnant so that her master would sell her. Unfortunately, that didn't even work. Um, so she she remained captive, even though her, the, the and so did her children, because in, in slavery, um, the mother, if the mother was enslaved, then that, like, quote unquote, like passed down to the kids. It was a way to get more slaves out of one person because you didn't just own the mother, you owned all the children, which is really disgusting and terrible. But um, it was the truth. So, I mean, I just wanted to touch on that really quickly because I think it's horrible that she she didn't even have, like her only approach was, her only escape was to try and use her body to force her master to sell her and even that didn't work. So, Aside from that, she eventually escaped seven years of mistreatment and um, went and finally moved to the moved to the north. I don't want to get into the details of how she escaped, um, but then she wrote in eighteen sixty one. It was self published. It's called "Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl" and it's arguably the most comprehensive slave narrative written by a woman. Um, her narrative does not shrink from discussing a lot of the sexual abuse of slaves and talks about the anguish felt by um, slave mothers who had to to give up their children because that was something she experienced. And this was the first sort of narrative that ever talked about the sexual assault and the sexual harassment that women encountered as slaves. And for a long time, like a lot of things, it was thought that it was a fictional account. And it was also thought that that fictional account was written by a, a white author. It was only into the in the 1960s, so like 100 years later, that her autobiography was authenticated by scholars. Uh, sorry, it was in it was rediscovered in the 1960s and then authenticated in, ni- in the 1980s. And it, it was, she was finally given the credit that she was due. So I would like to give her the credit that she is due because she wrote about her horrific experiences and gave a, a powerful first-person account during a time when even having a voice wasn't acceptable for slaves, specifically um, women who were also slaves. So... Unfortunately, that's all the information I have on her because, like I said, it was really difficult to find information on female journalists and then, like, specifically women of color who were writers during that time. So that's all we know about her. But she was incredible. Um, And her daughter became also a prominent abolitionist, which is very cool. Um, So it's like a family of activism. And the last journalist I want to touch on, this is kind of like a wild story. Um, Her name is Nellie Bly. She... um, was born in 1864 and died in 1922, so she was alive at the turn of the 20th century. And she began her journalistic career in 1880 at the age of 16. So I guess back then you didn't need a cover letter and a resume to become a journalist. I'm not salty, I'm just applying, really trying here. So um, she became a journalist at the age of 16 and she was put on one of the women's columns in her home paper, the Pittsburgh Dispatch. So she had to write about her, like the home and the hearth and gardening and society and child rearing, despite the fact she was 16. Um, but Nellie Bly was not having any of it. So she eventually convinced her editor to let her write about di- how divorce affected women and um, domestic matters. And then she decided that wasn't enough and like yeeted herself to Mexico where she spent six months there as a special correspondent. So she, she was committed to covering issues affecting women and putting herself out there and being an advent- like a, 
uh, a courageous journalist. So in 1886, like, this was amazing to me. Like, this was the 1800s, and she was a female journalist out there taking names. Um, So in 1886, she moved to New York and tried really, really hard to find work. And it was very difficult. She couldn't find work. So she, in 1887, stormed into the office of the New York World, which was at the time one of the biggest newspapers in the country. And she decided, she's like, hey, I'm going to do a paper on, or I'm going to do a piece on the immigrant experience in the United States. And the editor was like, no, um, we don't care about immigrants. Actually, I don't know if he said that, but all it says is that he rejected her topic. And then he said, I challenge you to investigate one of the New York New York's most notorious mental hospitals. And Nellie Bly thought, I've never met a challenge that I didn't like. And she she did it. So while I don't agree with her methods, I think the journalism she did was very important. And at the time, so she she faked having a mental illness and was admitted to one of, um, she was admitted to the ins, quote unquote insane asylum on Blackwell Island. Um, so like while I disagree with her imitating mental illness at the time it was people who were mentally ill would be put in an asylum and just you would never hear from them again like you had no idea what was going on that's where they were for the rest of their life the only way to get that coverage was to get inside so while I think her methods are definitely problematic she did some really important work she um stayed there for only 10 days and she found a lot of really horrifying stuff in which there were 16 doctors um, were assigned to the care of 1,600 inmates. That's crazy. Like, that ratio is insane. And she um, said that aside from two of them, she had never seen any of the doctors pay attention to the patients. She also questioned the judge's ability to pronounce a woman insane. So she was like, why do you get to decide whether or not a woman is insane? She said that even, like... She said, um, a judge's ability to pronounce a woman insane by merely bidding her good morning and refusing to hear her pleas of release. So even if a woman started to feel better, they she couldn't leave. The judge just wouldn't listen to her. She also, and I thought this was really incredible, reported on cultural insensitivity and the language barriers that immigrant we- women who didn't speak any English, little or no English, um, she she talked about how they were really ignored and how um, there was a, a whole host of, like, hostile and abusive treatments and everyone kind of lived in vermin-infested locked rooms. So she wasn't just looking at, like, the treatment of inmate, inmates. She was specifically looking at how it affected groups within that. So women as well as um, immigrant women, which I think is really important. And she used, she leveraged her privilege in order to do that. So how did she get out, right? Like, this asylum, as she was on the ferry, the guy who was taking her was like, you're never coming back. Um, she dropped her act, but it was, like, they didn't care. No one was listening, like she said. And the only reason she got out is because her newspaper sent an attorney to arrange for her release. So she did have a certain amount of privilege, and that that's how she got out. But it also gives you a great, good idea of, like, how terrible it was to live in that time. But she went in there with the full knowledge that she might never, ever come out, which is incredibly brave and risky and I don't think that you know there are many people who would do the same even now 
And she wrote a book, and it was published with the the paper, and it had a big effect. So the New York municipal government gave way more money to the care of the mentally ill on Blackwell's Island, and a lot of the stuff that she pointed out, like the abuses and the poor treatment, were changed, and there were better living conditions and more nourishing meals, and she was... And the foreign-born finally got translators, so they weren't necessarily mentally ill. They just couldn't speak English, which is like, come on, America. Have you ever heard of a language that isn't English? Like, what it, why is that your first reaction when someone can't speak English? You're like, oh, guess I'll send them to an asylum? So she really did some important work and was incredibly brave and also did a lot of other stuff that I don't have time to touch on where she went to... Um, around the world in 80 days and she did some incredible stuff so I want to finish on a couple I know I'm running late a couple of statistics so um across all media platforms men receive 63 percent of bylines and credits and women receive 37 percent that statistic is really disheartening and I think I think it's a missed opportunity. First of all, it's not surprising that men dominate journalism, but you've seen these three women presented incredibly important perspectives of incredibly important issues, and we're missing a lot of that. We're missing out on really powerful voices and also really brave women um, and gender non-conforming journalists, and I think it's so important that we try and change this dynamic in some of our most represented fields. So thank you guys for listening today. Um, I know this episode was definitely a little chaotic, but when, when, is, when is America not chaotic? So thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.